0: You're listening to the Brooklyn USA Podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show posts up on a different corner of life in Brooklyn and shares the stories, sounds, and scenery of the people and places that pass us by. And for the past four months, we've been telling the city's story from the intersection of the ballot and the bug, a corner we've been calling 1920. Today is July 10th, and I can't decide if we've come only this far or already. The trip's been long, strange, severe, and sanitized, but the real PPE is the friends we made along the way. So this week, we're reconnecting with them to hear how life's gone on since the last time we spoke and how their stories continued after our episodes end. And though we wish that we could climb right through the telephone line. Still, we're reunited, and it feels so good,
1: in Brooklyn, USA. Hello, everyone.
2: It's me again, Mavis Palmer, straight out of Brooklyn. I'm here to give you an update on my dealings of the COVID-19. Since the last time that I came on, I've been going to the doctor in person, got blood tests done. I went to get an x x-ray done, got my results back, and it said my lungs was cleared with this, so I'm glad to say that I am a survivor. I'm on anxiety medication. Because sometimes you think you still have it. It's been a journey. I still have some effects of it. Right now, I'm on an asthma pump, and I use it as needed. My cough that I cannot get rid of. I don't know if that's a long-term effect or not. It's like as soon as I get excited, I've got to just cough. So I try not to get excited. I also experience a breakout of a rash that comes and goes on my face. So that's the issue that we're dealing with right now. I'm on antibiotics and cough medicines. Since then I can honestly say I'm I'm feeling a hundred percent better than last time. I'm just pushing forward now. Trying to fit back into a normal world, which it seems like that's not going to be anytime soon. It's kind of scary since everything is about to open back up. We're in phase three right now. I don't think Individuals realize how real COVID is. I think that maybe they should have waited just a little longer. The spikes that are happening in Arizona, California, South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, and Texas is scary. I actually went on a trip to South Carolina within the last week and rode the airplane. That experience was a weird one because the seating arrangements were very different. It was a seat, a space, a seat. So it looked like an empty plane. You know I'm a frequent flyer. I know how I usually go. When you look around and you see everybody on the plane... They're serious about having a mask on on a plane. You know, it's very uncomfortable because you're up so high, and your ears is popping. You wanna to try to yawn, so it's like really hard to do with the mask on your face on a plane. And I was like, wow, this is gonna be like the way for a very long time coming. It was like, you know, you work in the hospital traveling on a plane. I was scared to fly, but you know, I'd rather do a hour and a half than 12 hours driving. And when I got to South Carolina, I got off the plane with my mask on, my gloves on, I had my hand sanitizer. Went to go pick up my car from the car rental place. It looked like the COVID didn't even exist. I get there, and nobody had no mask on. So I'm asking everybody, where's your mask? And if you notice the places that is going around is, it's the hot spots. Arizona's hot. California's hot. Florida's hot. The hotter it gets, the more the spike is going up. I understand it's like 90 to 100 degrees, but still in all, safety is first. The response was, oh, I'm not going to catch it. Oh, I'm good. And I was saying to myself, I had it. I had to say to a young guy that was at the counter, "Son, put your mask on because this is really really real." They was in the grocery store with no mask on. Walking down the road with no mask on, cuz you know it's roads down there, you know. Like everything was okay. Leaving out, coming back to JFK, we were told that we would have to quarantine for the 14 days. And they will be checking up on us. I don't know how true that is or not, but I am quarantining. I did get a phone call, but, you know, I don't answer phone numbers that I don't know. I think we all do that. So I don't know if they're checking up on me or not. But on the safe side, I'm quarantining doing what's required just to come back to New York. I'm hoping that the second wave will not be as deadly as the first one. We know a lot more with trial and error. With that being said, I'm hopeful that there will be a cure for us. But for me myself, I'm kind of biased because from a disease that killed so many people with no real research, Is a no go. My vaccination for me is my vitamins. Making sure that I uh, do my social distancing and quarantining. But as far as getting vaccinated, I'm not doing none of that at all. You know, as being a survivor, I got after effects that I don't know down the road is gonna affect me. I have a chronic cough that I just can't get rid of. I'm taking antibiotics i'm taking cough medication and i don't have pneumonia in my lungs anymore so i'm just like where's this coming from and it's very uncomfortable it's like i felt my life been disrupted from contracting the coronavirus i have high anxiety issues it's hard for me to sleep sometimes after i go outside i wait in my building to get in the elevator when no one is in the elevator. If I had some light soil, I would be spraying it while I'm in the elevator by myself, <laughs> you know, just to reassure myself because it becomes a mental thing with the aftermath. I'm just hoping that everybody's gonna do what they're supposed to do, continue with social distancing, which I do not see happening anytime soon because the weather is hot. Crime is at an all-time high in New York. Too much free time for our youth not to be able to be engaged with positive things. You know, they took away the summer youth program. You know, it's a stressful situation for everybody. I constantly think about the children that are in the house. They don't even want to be in the households, and they outlet is school. So, you know, it's a sad situation all around, but I'm glad that the spike has went down in New York, but it's sad that it's going up in all of these other places. I can't even imagine trying to keep a mask on a little kid all day, because when I get to the car, I'm ready to throw my mask off. I don't even want it on anymore. So it's going to be, I don't know. I have no idea how it's going to be for... Schools reopening and the world reopening with nobody listening. My final thoughts about the COVID-19, it still goes back to my first episode. I'm grateful. I I, There's no other way that I can say it. My life is not going to be as it was, but it's going to be better as it is now. I'm just glad I beat it. I hope no one else get it, but we already know that's not going to be the case. And far as a vaccine, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know. Trial and error. Be safe. That's all I can think of. Thank you for listening. Maybe this can help somebody understand what you really go through. Before, during, and after.
3: My name is Isenia Mata and I'm the executive director of La Colmena, a day labor and immigrant rights organization based in Staten Island, New York. Since the pandemic hit, La Colmena has not closed its doors. The pandemic, it was one of the hardest moments for the immigrant community. Many were wondering where they were going to get food how they were going to provide for their families financially. And many of their loved ones were passing away due to COVID. You see, this administration, this governor, completely forgot about the immigrant community. But that is when we decided, as a community, to stand up. During the pandemic, it was Mujeres Liderando who decided to start making masks to create a job for other immigrant women. They protect their community. They make sure that the immigrant father, the immigrant mother is protected with the proper PPE. And that is what my parents always taught me. I saw how many people took advantage of my parents, took advantage of my father because he was an immigrant. And that is how when I speak to any immigrant mother, to any immigrant father, I always remember of my parents. This pandemic has really shown the resilience of the immigrant community. Even the moment when it started, I remember when I had spoken with Brick, I had mentioned to them, the day that the city announced that the city will shut down, I detained someone on Staten Island. Throughout this whole pandemic, we have been in contact with various other members of La Cormena that have been detained and that were sent to detention center. We were keeping track of what was going on with each member and many were afraid of getting sick. Some even got sick. Right now, many of them are out because they were released because of COVID. They still have to do many check-ins. Some of them still have pending court dates. The city made budget cuts and it really scared us because (laughs) any sort of cut for us at this moment affects us. And we ended up being selected by Moya to distribute funds to the immigrant community. As of right now, we are in charge of distributing one million dollars to the immigrant community. Even though one million dollars may seem a lot, it's nowhere near to the amount of immigrants that are here on the island. There needs to be more support here. The immigrant community needs more support. And the fight's still not over.
4: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is train operator Chris Morrell for the New York City subway system. I last spoke to you back in April, in the beginning of the pandemic. Let's talk about what's going on during the pandemic. Um, things are slightly getting back to normal, but it's, it's not the normal that you want to call normal. It's really the new normal. The way I look at it, it's as if the world has ended and not the physical earth which is going to be here for thousands of years, but the world that we live in, the lifestyles that we're used to, is over. There's so many precautions you got to take during this time. Um, You know, since I last talked to you guys, uh, I happened to take off or work for two weeks because I came in contact with people that had the coronavirus. This is very alarming because First, it was two people, then it became, at this time right now, in July, since April. We had about 145 deaths, and the thing about the deaths is a handful of them was people that I knew and worked with, and what really got to me, too, was my neighbor, 35 years old. I would have been 35 this year, a dispatcher, a lady I talked to every day, be in the same room doing laundry with her in my building, and she's not even here no more. And I walk past her apartment and see her family gathering her belongings, knowing that she's no longer here. It's really bringing a psychological effect to the workforce because, uh, you know, as we slowly come back to work, which we have most of the workforce back, um, it's tough that you don't see the same friends and the same people they used to talk to all the time. the job has changed uh, in a sense where when uh, last time I told you about the PPE, we wasn't getting a lot of PPE. We all, we all getting that. Um, we're supplied with uh, hand sanitizer. Everybody gets a face mask. You're not allowed to sign on without a face mask. Uh, every spot, every department, you have to, before you start work, you have to get your temperature checked. If it's a high temperature, you're sent home, sent for medical, so There's a lot of precautionary measures being taken place to make sure that the workers are safe. I do say that the um, amount of cases has dropped because a lot of people have been taking the measures to stay safe, but I feel that the passengers are are getting a little bit too complacent. And that's the thing about this virus, it's something that you can't see. It's the base that is man-made, it's the base that is natural, whatever it is, it's real. For me to lose 145 co-workers, my son lost his grandfather. Uh, I know a few friends, like I said, co-workers that died. I got a few friends that their relatives died. Everybody has to know at least one person that died from this. And whether it's corona that killed them, and that's a debate too, saying, oh, well, this person had cancer, but they say that they died from corona, which is, you know, the corona was the accelerant. Not saying they wouldn't have died for the cancer, but the corona was like adding gasoline to the fire. Um, so what's happening in the subways, we all running 100% service, except for one line, the F line, but it's not like... We're probably running about 90% service on that line. Um, So everything is slowly getting back to normal. Um, But you do notice the class system of who has to come out or who doesn't, uh, I still don't see any of the people that work down on Wall Street. I don't see the office workers. Those guys are still missing from the subway. Um, and, and the crowds are still relatively smaller, but now since the shopping centers open up and different, you know, stores, retails, like in Midtown, you got more people coming out, going about business, you know, buying stuff and um, getting on the subways. So I would say the subway system every day is like a typical Saturday. That's what it is. You know, you're running 100% service, the trains are less crowded, but it does get a little bit crowded like normal, how it used to be before the pandemic, you know, in the, in the poor neighborhoods because these are the people that's working. You know, the people that have money, people that work downtown, Wall Street, Central Business District, they don't have to go to work. so you'll notice that um, like stations like Grand Central and Herald Square, those places are still what you want to consider a ghost town. But everywhere else, you ride out to Brownsville, you ride out to um, the South Bronx, you'll notice the trains are crowded in the morning and in the evening. Um, So uh, how I've been dealing with the pandemic, I have been since April, you know, when I get home, I put my clothes away, I wash my clothes, I don't wear the same shirt twice, you know, you know, uniform wise, you can get away with that. But I make sure that, hey, I put that, if I have it clean, I don't care if there's no stains in the shirt, I'm putting that shirt in the bag, it's getting washed. As soon as I get to the laundry, uh, I uh, sanitize everything that I bring into the house from my wallet to my change. Keep everything uh, sanitized. That's the first thing I do is no, let me sit back at home at the long week of work and have a bed. I um it's, it's instilled to in me every time I step in that door to sanitize and um, make sure everything is cleaned up before I go and relax. So, you know, this thing has gotten a lot of it has tightened up a lot of people when it comes to neatness and, and, and staying clean. Not like I wasn't clean before, but the fact that I'm just I'm doing laundry twice as much a week, you know. I don't want clothes close certain around. I'm doing it twice as much a week. I don't, You don't know, this stuff could be in your clothes, whatever, you know, it could be anything, on anything. So, uh, another thing, uh, when I'm on a job, it, like I told you in the last interview that I wasn't wearing a mask, and now I am wearing a mask because we have to have uh, a mask on when we're on the property. Now, the passengers have the option to or not, even though the president said, uh, of the transit said, "Oh, you have to wear a mask, or you will be shamed." People don't care about that. You can't force people to wear a mask. So what I do, if you don't want to wear a mask, and I'm still kind of skeptical on how the mask thing works, because first they tell you, "Oh, if you wear a mask, uh, wear one if you if you had the virus to prevent other people from getting there. And now and then they say, "Oh, well, we got we, everybody should wear one, so you won't get it." And it's like, "All right, well, what do you want us to do?" You <laughs> know? And since I have to wear one. Um, In the beginning, I noticed it was hard to get adapted to the mask because you will be, especially me operating in a cabin by myself, I would crack the windows open because if you're operating in a train with little ventilation and you have a mask on, you start feeling dizzy, you start getting drowsy, you know? It's not healthy to be, or even if people driving in their cars, they had instances of people driving in their cars and crashed because they passed out, they had a mask on. With the windows rolled up so you know that's that's something that yeah, i had to get used to so what i do now is um i'll crack the windows open i have a mask on sometimes i'll keep it off and somebody runs up to me and ask a question i'll crack the window and have my mask on yeah when i walk down the platform i'll have my mask on you know customer interaction uh, another thing about the subways that's interesting is uh the homeless situation has dropped um uh, it got it has gotten a lot better. Um, and that started with a tug of war between the mayor and the governor because at one point people felt like the homeless people were spreading the virus. And I side with it partially with, you know, I believe it's not, it wasn't just demos or the other people that was traveling around because you got people that was on the train with no mask on sickly. And in um, a homeless situation actually got a little worse in April, from April to May, because since you had less people on the train, we had more homeless people congregating in the subway cars like some guys had like whole living room set, setups in the car they have a whole car to themselves and then you know when we have to take a train out of service at the last stop it'll take a good five to eight minutes to get all of their stuff out of their car and they'll get on a plaque then we started having more cops the mca police started getting uh on the scene and uh Removing them. So the Blasio had a good point. What he wanted to do was shut down the last stop of, of terminals that were hot spots for the homeless, such as like Columbia Bay Park 200, on the 6th line, 207th Street on the uh, A line, Parsons on the E line, and run shuttle buses back and forth. Um, that worked for a bit, and then the governor stepped in and said, hey, no, we're going to shut the system down from 1 to 5. And we're going to disaffect every train. We thought that this is going to be some state-of-the-art, all this show-and-tell stuff that he was talking about. To be honest with you, the, the trains have been cleaner. They have been cleaning them at the terminals. They have an outside cleaning company. They outsource the money to an outside cleaning company, which a lot of in-house cleaners fear maybe the end of the line for them because they're paying them cheaper. So that's another thing that the union, I guess, is fighting for, to make sure that these guys that's already cleaners in the system hold their job. Um, But the trains have been cleaner. Less homeless people have been riding the trains. You know, a lot of them, they'll ride in the daytime, but I think a lot of, and then they'll um, at nighttime, they'll they'll sleep in the daytime on the train and at nighttime they'll go out into the streets. But I do think a lot of them um, ended up in the shelters because I see a big drop in that. Um, Stations have been cleaner, but not all stations. I notice a lot of stations in the hood be, uh, like I'll go through Spanish Harlem, I see a pile of feces on the platform and I'll come back to that station the next week, the next day, and it's still there. So that just shows you, it's like a, it's like, to me, it's a show and tell. Um And I don't think they need to shut the system down for one to five, because now it's phase three, as they say, a lot of people's coming back to work. It's sad to see people that's trying to get home after the day work and they missed that last train. Now they gotta go from bus to bus. Now I know they have been offering an Uber, Lyfts or rideshare ride service for them, but I don't know how efficient that is. I haven't talked to anybody that made use of it. Um, another thing, opening the city back up. I just got word, you know, I have a six-year-old son. De Blasio wants the kids to go back to school. I don't think that's a smart move until everything opens up because how are we going to send the kids back to school and we didn't open up everything else 100%. I think things should open up to see how the virus travels because to be honest, deep down, I feel like that's the only way to uh, get rid of it if you just let everybody do what they want to do. If you could see how this thing plays out, like it's playing out in other parts of the country. In the month of July and August, if you see if it's going downhill, keep the schools closed. I don't think we got enough, um, we had enough things happen or enough things open to see that we should send the kids back to school. So I highly disagree with that. I actually have to little debate with my son's mother whether or not to send him back. And that's gonna be tough because she has to work and I have to work. So, we gotta see uh, what's gonna happen in three months, how this thing play out in three months. Um, like I said, a lot of people's riding the trains again, but it's mostly for leisure and um, just the uh, workers that, to the urban communities, none of the people that work downtown or office workers, and you don't see those guys on the train. So but it's, good to, it's good to say that uh, even with all this activity, of people being outside because they can't stand because it's warm out, um, you don't see uh, a lot of cases getting developed. As far as we know, Like I don't hear a lot of people in my job. Hey, this person went out because they got sick. A lot of those people already came back to work, so I'm happy to see that the people survived it. And I'm just curious to you know what's going on next, but I feel like the best thing I can do is just go with the flow. If I don't feel safe, I make a change for it. I'll stay away from uh, groups of people and just keep doing what I got to do.
5: So when we decided that we were going to do kind of an update episode of reaching back out to some folks we had previously talked to, the person who quickly came to mind for me was Dr. Vincent Racaniello, the virologist from Columbia University who really loves viruses. And at the time when I spoke to him, early May, Vincent was optimistic about the situation, and I think at that time really helped me and people who heard that episode to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel as we slogged on with the lockdown. So fast forward to today, early July, had the opportunity to speak with Vincent again, and... Vincent's outlook is a little less rosy. I think the optimism back in May was something that we needed, and I actually think this pessimism is something that we need right now just to be totally real about the fact that this is something that we're going to continue to battle for a very long time and need to continue to uh, take seriously. So I think we all know that, but it also helps to get it straight from the mouth of a virologist.
6: I wrote the provost of my university back in February, and I said, this is what you need to do if you're thinking about going to school. You need to do this, this, and this. I never heard from him. And I said, if you don't have a committee of virologists and public health people, then you're, you're gonna screw up. Don't just have lawyers on this committee because all you're worried about is liability. So I think a lot of decisions are made in a science vacuum. I'm Vincent Racaniello. I'm a professor of virology at Columbia University. I've been working on viruses for over 40 years, and uh, I do a lot of public outreach as well. I have podcasts and blogs, and I teach a virology course, which you can find on YouTube. So I, I don't know if there's anybody other than Tony Fauci, who's as immersed in viruses as I am. (laughs) Now, it's been a long time and a lot has happened. I mean, this virus has been ripping around the world, essentially. And, you know, we went in lockdown. Many countries went in lockdown. And the point of all that time was to try and develop testing capacity, I think, in my opinion, because it's really important as we're going back now test, trace, and isolate, and really reduce the spread. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And you saw what happened in Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, they did not go back properly and the cases are shooting up. So what's properly? You have to wear face masks everywhere you go. And I don't see people doing that everywhere. You have to keep your physical distance. Uh, You have to be tested frequently, and there's no plan for that in most states. The Fed said, oh, you don't have to test. And that percolates down. And if you're in a red state, they don't test. If you're in a blue state, they test. It's crazy that it became a political issue. Even face mask wearing has become a political issue. So I've been watching all this happening and thinking we didn't need to get to this point, and it's going to be rough. So we could be doing the testing. I'm sure it's gonna slowly ramp up over the summer, but it should have been in place already. The money problem is something I just don't buy. I just don't buy, we don't have time to develop it. You had three months to do it. The states and the government should be paying for all this. It's a lot less money than the trillions they're spending on recovery. They don't seem to understand that if we can do this extensively, we will stop this outbreak. If you wanna open a school, with a bunch of kids in a room, you need to test them at least once a week without fail. Otherwise, you're going to have infections. They're going to bring them home to their parents. You know, there's been some talk lately that kids don't transmit, which is nonsense. Of course they transmit. They make virus just as much as anybody else. They don't get sick, but they do transmit. So my view is the schools that are not opening are not willing to spend the money to ensure the safety. And I get a lot of pushback on that, but I'm right because this is the one time you should be spending your money to keep your students safe and the the older teachers and the older parents of the students. I think overall there's been uh, a disconnect. The uh, people in charge of making policy are not listening to the scientists at all levels. So even down to the schools. So there are 172 different vaccines in development. I think 14 are at some phase one or phase two step, which is what you need, of course, to get to phase three and eventually get approved. So that means most of them are not going to be anywhere near completion by next year. You know, the FDA last week issued guidelines for how these vaccines should be tested. And they had some pretty rigorous guidelines there. In fact, for the first time i thought the fda was showing some resilience to federal pressure you know my feeling is if you follow the fda guidelines for vaccine testing you're not going to have anything before next summer because you need a lot of people and that just takes time you know thousands and thousands of people to enroll them do the test follow them for 6 months minimum collect the data i i just don't see it happening by the end of the year I see this outbreak continuing through the summer. It's probably going to get worse in the fall, through the winter. And so personally, I'm not traveling. I would normally travel quite a bit, so I'm not traveling anywhere. I don't go to restaurants. Whenever I go outside, I wear a face mask all the time. No questions about it. So I am not going to any gathering of people. You know, we were invited to a graduation party last week. Our neighbor's kid was graduating. I said, no way, because First of all, they weren't all gonna wear face masks. The, the woman said, some of them are Republicans, they're not wearing face masks. I said, I'm not going. The only thing I did was to go to a Black Lives Matter protest a month ago. And there were, there were 300 people there. They were all wearing face masks. Okay, they were all distanced. But I went because I think that's more important than anything else. I hear people say, oh, I have to go to a restaurant. I have to go out. I have." To do something. And I just have very little sympathy for that. This is war against the pathogen, and you really need to suck it up. Just suck it up, and that's what I'm doing. I, I am much less optimistic, although I do think we could control it by extensive testing uh, and face masking. Tetris is a great word and we get so much pushback no it's not going to work we can't do it but I think in the end that's really a key part of limiting this outbreak is Tetris for sure testing tracing and isolation
7: Ago, we produced a story about medical resource rationing under COVID and the ableist guidelines that states have been using to allocate care in the U.S.
1: Rationing
8: guidelines exist in 25 states in the nation.
9: The types of things that we saw across the country were things like in Alabama, for example, if you had a significant intellectual disability, although that's not the word that they used, or if you had significant dementia, you were not even eligible in Kansas and Tennessee, we saw that if you had certain neuromuscular disabilities, people with advanced neuromuscular disease, you were completely excluded, excluded from receiving critical care, maybe never even get to the ICU.
7: This week, we caught up with Allison Barkoff.
9: My name is Allison Barkoff, and I'm the director of advocacy at the Center for Public Representation,
7: to talk about how the fight has progressed and where it's headed next.
9: Since I last spoke with you, we've continued to do work to make sure that people with disabilities are able to get equal access to medical treatment and care. We've at this point filed almost a dozen complaints across the country with the Office of Civil Rights at Health and Human Services.
7: Early OCR resolutions in Alabama and Pennsylvania made it clear that crisis standards of care could not exclude people with disabilities. Since we last spoke, the Center for Public Representation has seen two new groundbreaking resolutions in Connecticut and Tennessee.
9: On June 9th, we resolved a complaint that we had filed about the state of Connecticut and their policies about visitors. Many hospitals have put in place very strict no-visitor policies. They may have exceptions for end-of-life care or people giving birth. And of course, there are many people with a range of different disabilities who might need a support person. In the months since this resolution, I think I've probably been in touch with advocates and legal entities from states all across the country, and we've already seen really the, the ripple effects of that important resolution. In many of the plans that we have seen across the country, they look at how long will a person survive after COVID. If you're looking kind of beyond immediate term or beyond a few months, people with disabilities may be excluded if you kind of base it on this long-term survivability. The resolution in Tennessee was really good, and they completely eliminated long-term survivability as a consideration in making treatment factors. There also are tools that most crisis standards of care use to predict people's ability to survive both in the immediate term or short term or longer term. People with disabilities who have underlying conditions may end up scoring in a way that doesn't really reflect their inability to survive, but their underlying conditions. So for example, some of the tests might look at how do you physically respond to touch or other things? Well, if someone has a physical disability and is paralyzed and can't respond, that has nothing to do with whether they will survive COVID, but it would score them higher on this tool and they would be deprioritized. The same thing for someone who might not speak using words and communicate in other forms. So the Tennessee resolution included a requirement that hospitals make reasonable modifications to the assessment tools. And then the last piece, the plan uh, removed and explicitly prohibits reallocation of personal ventilators. Many of the things in the Tennessee resolution have a intersecting impact with race issues and with age issues. COVID has laid bare so many inequities in our healthcare system. The latest data shows the huge disproportionate impact on black and other communities of color of COVID, and that really has to do with long-standing barriers to accessing health care. Since we've last spoken, the Office of Civil Rights at Health and Human Services, while doing this great work on these civil rights complaints, has rolled back some protections in the Affordable Care Act, Civil Rights Protections, Section 1557. And so there's been kind of this push and pull that, that's really been happening during the COVID crisis. The disability justice and racial justice movements have really taken some incredible leadership in identifying areas where we can collaborate. Black Disabled Lives Matter is really been a rallying cry, identifying everything from health care to policing to issues around criminal justice and incarceration to inequities in people dying in nursing homes and inability to access home and community-based services. I think a really good example of how race and disability and healthcare can come together in such a intersecting harmful way is the case of Michael Hickson who was a black disabled man in Texas trying to access health care. And there's an entire video of his doctor talking to his family saying he has no quality of life. We're not going to give him treatment for his COVID, it would be futile.
4: Because as of right now, his quality of life, he doesn't have much of one.
10: So, because, these are there, because he's uh, uh, the he doesn't quality correct?
9: It brings to bear and is a perfect example of how the lives of people with disabilities and particularly Black people with disabilities are incredibly devalued. And there's been an incredible movement led by Black disabled folks really highlighting that in Michael Hickson's case. For too long, there has been kind of a siloed view, both in racial justice movements and in disability justice movements of incarceration. So many people who interact with police, so many people in jails and prisons are people with disabilities.
7: There is no comprehensive federal database or tracking system, but available reports show that at least half of those killed by police are disabled. Despite this pervasiveness, Dr. Liat Ben Moshi, author of Decarcerating Disability, writes: disability and madness are largely missing from analysis of incarceration and its resistance.
9: I think there is a lot of work that could be done at the table to influence some of the asks and priorities that are coming out of the racial justice movement to infuse disability in more. And absolutely in the work that I and many others are doing in disability rights. We absolutely need to be thinking more through a racial justice lens. There's so much more work that can and must be done. And as a member of the disability community, I've really been following the lead of the incredible black disabled advocates, folks who are from communities of color and who are black and are people with disabilities themselves, who are really lifting up the importance of that work and laying out some of the issues that we all need to be working
7: on. In early April, Disability Rights New York filed a complaint with the Department of Health and Human Services to address New York's discriminatory ventilator allocation guidelines. The complaint has yet to be resolved. Since the rollout of statewide testing programs, CPR is seeing new issues around discrimination and access to testing. They're continuing to file complaints with the Office of Civil Rights and Health and Human Services. You can go to centerforpublicrep.org to learn more about your state's plan and get the resources you need to do advocacy in your own state.
0: Back in March, we met Mert Aragol, MD, an emergency room doctor at a Brooklyn Hospital that had been overtaken by COVID-19. He's checked in regularly since then with stories from the field and news from the front but it's been over a month since we heard from Dr. Mert who this week sets a very different scene.
10: You know at the beginning of the pandemic my opinion counted for something because I was in the middle of it I was reading a lot and nobody else knew anything about it but at this point I'm just like another guy. So take what I say with a grain of salt but I think The first wave in New York has abated. It's definitely winding down. We had a tent outside and we took that down. The uh, morgue trucks are gone. We're probably down to single digits in the hospital. For a while, there was no COVID and there were no other patients either. I mean, we went through a period where the census had gone down so much that they started sending doctors home. And so I got a lot of time off in June and then it started coming back. I mean, the rest of the illnesses of mankind have returned, you know, all the heart attacks and strokes and blood clots and stomach bleeding and whatever. And then old ladies falling from chairs and, People falling off their bikes. The drunks uh, are coming back a little. I mean, they never really fully went away. So, you know, things are kind of slowly going back to normal. Although, you know, it's still always on your mind. But uh, we're coming back to normal or the new normal, you know. We we don't know what this new stage of our lives is going to be. In the emergency department, or for that matter, what New York City is going to be like. There's so much uncertainty. What's fascinating about the disease is that in Europe it's disappearing, even in areas where the antibody prevalence is very low. The virus is disappearing, the cases are disappearing in these areas like New York and in Europe. Uh, the question remains, how long is this going to last? In the best case scenario, if everybody were on the same page, the virus would disappear from one place, everybody would be careful everywhere else, and it would disappear everywhere. What's happening is it's disappearing in New York and maybe in Europe, but we have another part of the country that's now undergoing their first wave. As you know, in the science denial belt, the disease is raging on, and there's just less concern for any one of a number of reasons, propaganda, familiarity, fatigue, culture. There's a deep suspicion and paranoia, but it's the symptom of our time. I mean, the real issue is that we don't live in a consensus reality, and we have different parts of the population living in in different worlds, and so, if they don't believe the virus is real, or if they don't believe masks work, or they're going to get sick if they wear a mask, then it's understandable that never not everybody's going to going to be on the same page, and perhaps there are people who are sort of cynically uh, making those manipulations at a high level. You know, spreading that propaganda. You know, obviously we have a. a president who doesn't believe in testing. So that is a continuing problem. And the worst case scenario, I guess, is that we're going to be playing ping pong. As immunity fades in one place, they'll get reinfected. And then unfortunately, since it's so politicized and since the governments of these states have an interest in showing their great success at managing the virus, I don't think we can trust the official statistics I mean, this is, this is my n- not completely expert opinion. I don't want to be alarmist. The interesting feature of the surge was everybody was on lockdown, and you knew nobody was doing anything. New York is this place where there's always somebody doing something more fun than you, and you're always missing out. And for once... We lived in this sort of leveled-out reality where nobody was doing anything. Everybody was at home watching the same Netflix thing. And slowly, people are kind of getting back to having social lives and stuff, and now we're back in the old New York, I guess. I mean, looking back, people had a kind of terrifically heightened emotional tone. I remember, you know, so many people reached out to me, told me I was in their thoughts. I mean, it was, it was nice, it was flattering, but it was also weird being the uh, focus of everybody's projection, you know. And now there's a kind of coming back to our senses and, and a kind of morning-after feeling. <laughs> um, I think, I think uh, it's nice that uh, people can get back to reality. You know, this city took an enormous body blow from this virus and is still reeling. But I personally have faith that whatever it is that makes New York a magical place and draws people from all over the world is gonna still be there. You know, if we lose a few people to the suburbs, I don't think that's gonna kill New York.
8: Um, What was I gonna say? I finished um, the second time I saw Avatar. So that's done. Avatar is finished for the second time. Amazing. <laughs> How long is the series? It's like three seasons. Each oh. season has like what? Like 20 episodes? Mm-hmm. Oh. About, yeah. It's amazing. It's really amazing.
6: Even though it's a cartoon, I recommend it. It has good um, story concepts behind it. What Very is the, good. Like, for
0: mm-hmm. av- this is, what is the elevator pitch for Avatar, the the
8: cartoon? Um, so the world is divided between four sections. You have like the air tribes, the air nomads, you have the water tribes, you have the earth kingdom and you have the fire nation. Mm-hmm. And then, and everyone lived peacefully and Carol, let me know if I'm I'm doing a bad job, but everyone like lived peacefully. But then the fire nation, they decided to attack the other nations and make everyone the fire nation. Basically they decided mm-hmm. to invade the, the other nations.
6: The fire um, nation like America.
8: Like, yeah got it exactly the fine nation is definitely like america so every cycle there is this um there's a member of each nation that's called the avatar and okay. they get to oh and one thing this person
6: reincarnated every year well, every time the person dies so the cycle continues the lineage yeah.
8: and and one thing that i forgot to say is that these nations that i mentioned um there are some people who can like They're called, like, bending, which is, like, kind of, like, power, I guess. But they can, like, for instance, the Earth Nation, they're, like, earthbenders. They can, like, move earth or rocks. The Fire Nations, they can, like, blast fire. The Air Nomads, some of them could do the same thing. The Water Tribes, they could do, like, they could, you know, Mm -hmm. like, splash water. And then uh, what ended up happening is that the Fire Lord, they, like, heard that the new Avatar belongs to, like, the Air Nomads. So he invades the air nomads and he kills all of them. He kills all of them except one kid who was like the Avatar and he was frozen in a big block of ice. I know this sounds like insane. <laughs> no, 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 I love it. Yeah. So so he was frozen for like 100 years in a big block of ice with his air bison. And mm-hmm. then um, and then um, what ended up happening is that he, like these two water tribe kids, they find him and they kind of like uh, free him. And then he's like, what's going on? And they were like, oh wow you're an air gnome you know you're an air nomad everyone like they're all killed and then so he's the last i've been gone for a hundred years basically and that's why he's the last airbender exactly yeah exactly and then his job is to like bring back peace and you know like
6: master all four of the elements and then fight the new fire lord just to like peace and everything so the rest of the show is just like a journey of um these four kids basically learning how to master their abilities and face any challenge and whatnot. And then um, the way that the story is written, it has a lot of deep morals in it and whatnot as far as like philosophical views and stuff is on, um, I feel like it touched base on a lot of different elements that are like relevant with what's happening today. Exactly. Like what?
8: Tell me more about that. Like for uh, just the whole, like, you know, like colonialism, yes. um, American supremacy, mm-hmm. white supremacy, mm-hmm. like this idea of like some, na- you know, because you have a certain, like the fire, uh, I mean, there are some fire, good fire nation people, as there are good some, some good, like white people, but the mm-hmm. fire nation as a whole believes that they're like superior to the other um, elements because they think that fire is like the superior uh-huh. element and then so that's why they so when you think about it in the context of race you see that wow it's kind of like um kind of makes sense and it's very like Miyazaki-esque like the whole you know like the characters are super super complicated like it's yeah. not like there's only one-sided like this character is evil you know like there's that's deep it.
6: character development
8: Yeah, there's like really good arcs and stuff, so I definitely recommend. The first episode is super goofy, but the like the first over
6: time it it picks up.
8: It it picks up, and there's some and the funny thing. um, Clearly, I'm like really (laughs) obsessed with this (laughs) show. Yeah, fangirl. So each of the bendings or the powers are um, kind of like influenced by real martial arts. So Mm -hmm. for instance, water bending is influenced by Tai Chi. So that's like a little bit of a so that's really cool, and then um, yeah, I really really love this show. I think it's like really cool. It's really fun, and it's like funny. And they're like, you know, there's a lot of like it's very inclusive. Like one of the characters is blind, you know. Yeah. Like, one of the, but she's a-,
6: a badass though.
8: She's like a badass. Yeah, she's like <laughs> this blind badass, like little girl who like kicks everyone's ass. Yeah. So I feel like it's really it's a really good show. Carol, did you see the M night Shyamalan movie? No. Oh my god. So there's a movie of Avatar, but it's so bad. It is so bad that everyone
6: Oh Yeah, I've heard of that. It, yeah. yeah, I didn't know I was happy. Yeah, so I this
8: recommend
0: This movie it. has a five percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, that's how bad yeah, it the is. We wanna hardcore. see it so badly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Don't waste this your time. <laughs> No, yeah. not worth it. Okay, I'll watch the show first. Um, All right, I think you guys have sold me
8: on Avatar The Last Airbender. In in the movie, they made all the brown people the Fire Nation, which is like it was also very racist. Like all the Indians and black people and everyone were like, and all the white people were like the water people, like the water tribes and, the, and you know, like the, the main character. is like, oh, so everyone was like really pissed. because Yeah,
4: because like clearly whoever made the movie did not watch anything of the
8: show. Yeah, right. They were like mispronouncing the name. Oh, and yeah.
6: then there's a sequel to the series also.
8: Yeah, Legend of Korra, which is like the other air, um, avatar. Wow. Super amazing. Um, cool.
0: Any other TV news? That was so much TV news. I love that.
1: Hey, Brooklyn USA, this is Betsy Smolian, calling from Brooklyn. I worked at Brickens Hill just about two weeks ago, so I just wanted to check in and say hi. I've started my new job as the Interim Executive Director at Heights and Hills, an organization that supports in-home aging. We have a staff of Brooklynites who are so dedicated to helping homebound seniors through the COVID crisis. We have social workers and volunteers making tons of phone calls. We're doing video classes. We're helping people get air conditioners. We're delivering hot meals and emergency kits. And we have a volunteer shopping squad buying and delivering groceries for older people. And then, of course, behind the scenes, we're figuring out the city budget and the government regulations that affect all of our work. Yesterday, I went to see a very beautiful and very empty senior center, and I was thinking you guys should do a show focused on a senior center when all of this is behind us. Anyway, just wanted to say I miss you, I love you, and I'm listening to you. Bye.
0: If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you.
5: Weekend weather is griffin'. Weekend weather is griffin'. Hey everyone, it's junior meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high, 79, low, 75. It will be rainy. Saturday, high, 87, low, 72. It will be rainy. Again, uh, Sunday, high, 89. Low, 75. You might want to wear sunglasses because it's going to be partly cloudy. Weekly fun fact. Did you know that the first oranges weren't orange? They were green. Thank you for listening. Brooklyn!
0: Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias.
7: And me, Emily Boghossian.
8: And me, Shirin Barry.
5: And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carole Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle.
8: And me, Mayimi Sato. With help this
0: week from Justin Bryant, Brick Radio Jr. Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, and Taylor Cook. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe. And follow at Brick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.
1: Just wanted to say I miss you, I love you, and I'm listening to you. Bye.